Hey, everyone. This is the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast and iHeartRadio and Dan Patrick Podcast Network production. I'm Joey Santos. And I'm Alan Nevins. And this week, we are talking to acclaimed author Richard Morgan. Richard has written nine hugely popular books to date, all within the science fiction and fantasy space. And his book, Altered Carbon, was made into a huge Netflix series, which I'm excited to talk to him about that. Yeah, I watched that. Did you watch that? Yeah, it was really I had good. to watch it. I sold it. But <laughs> I sold that show. But I liked it because, you know, I like that world. I like science fiction. Well, that's the whole science of world building, isn't it? Yes. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Well, why don't you say we grab our drinks and dive in, huh? Joey, what do you have as our cocktail this week in honor of our guest? Well, I created something called the Altered Perception. Oh, I like that. That's a good But idea. I based it on a Long Island iced tea. <laughs> I like this, Which though. will alter your perception. So it has uh, a half a fluid ounce of vodka, a half fluid ounce of rum, a half fluid ounce of gin, a half fluid ounce of tequila, a half fluid ounce of triple sec, which is an orange-flavored liqueur for those of you who don't know. One fluid ounce of sweet and sour mix and a fluid ounce of cola to taste and then uh, a lemon slice. So didn't we go somewhere and we were talking about something and someone had mentioned that there was another alcohol you could put in a Long Island iced tea? And we were like, wow, that's like six ounces of alcohol. Uh, I think that kind of covered it unless you want to put some rubbing alcohol in. Oh, there that would you be go. A, that would be a kitty to cocktail. <laughs> kitty to caucus cocktail. Uh if any God, now that really just went back too far away. I don't think anybody who knows would know who that is. I've read history books of your youth. <laughs> That's a hysterectomy book. <laughs> anyway, you could add something else in there. I don't know what other thing you would put, but I mean, it, it's kind of Long Island is Long Island, so right. stick with what you got. I like Long Island teas, but you only need one. That would be my guilty pleasure if I had one of those. That would be my week's guilty pleasure. Because... You would never feel guilt again if you drank that. And you wouldn't feel anything again, ever. Did you have a guilty pleasure this week? No, I had a horrible week. I had a horrible week. I had doctor's appointments. I had all those kind of things. You know, I had a bit of a wake-up call. <sighs> about what? Health-wise. Health-wise. Oh. I, mean, I mean, thank God everything's fine. But, you know, you get that kind of thing. You know, you it's my birthday is approaching. And you start going every year, you want to go and get your checkup and your annual blood and all of that stuff. And then, so, you know, you, you talk yourself into making the appointments and you go and you do. And then all of a sudden the doctor looks at you funny and you're like, well, I'm sorry. And me, I don't need any help with my imagination. No, A bee lands on you and you think you have bee disease. Oh, I do. Anyway, I, without getting too personal and, and in depth, I'll just say that it was something that was not quite right. And it's freaked me out. And so I got the wake-up call, and uh, I'm not going back to sleep. So whatever I well, had to do— you know, as you get older, one foot does get longer than the other one. Is that all that gets longer? <laughs> uh, I hear your so, nose keeps growing, too. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, anyway, so everything's okay. But, it, but it's just a wake-up call. So that, that part was shitty. And like you know me forever— and I have a very vivid imagination, So you and I'm a bit of a hypochondriac. So you tell me you sneeze twice, and all of a sudden I've got— you know, Legionnaire's disease or something. You know, that's just my my brain or lack thereof. So I went through that that week of everything that I could imagine was wrong with me was wrong with me. I was already, you know, I was doing, you know, Camille. I was on the in bed, you know, with the gardenia in my hair, and I was saying my last rites or listening to my <laughs> the last. The problem rites. with you is you didn't go through any of the things that are actually wrong with you. 
<laughs> you know, Alan Nevins, I'm going to just be grateful. I'm going to be around for a very long time to bug the shit out of you. <laughs> That's my revenge on that. Ooh, that is so. torture. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so thank God, knock on wood and plastic and paper and whatever else I can find to knock on. Everything's okay. Good. All right. Phew. Phew. P-H-E-W. Phew. <laughs> Anyway, what's your guilty pleasure that I'm still here? I don't have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if I had a guilty pleasure this week. I, you know, it was a weird week, maybe. You know, just generally because, um, you know, Larry McMurtry died. I know, and, and you know, Suzanne DePass, of course, was on the show and talked about we her talked story about, about Lonesome and, yeah. Dove, and sure enough, just one week later or two weeks later, yeah, he he has died, and. Uh, you know, my career started around him, really, because mm-hmm. when I went to work for Irving Lazar, that was one of his big star novelist client. And, you know, Lonesome Dove had just come out a year previously, I think, to my working there. And it had been passed all over town, as Susanna told you. And then she thought she got this dud. And then it won the Pulitzer Prize, which is what made it, made it possible for her to make Lonesome Dove. You know, interestingly enough, did I tell the story about selling Evening Star? The Evening Star, wasn't that the remake of Turns of Endearment? It was the it was the sequel. The sequel. Or, yeah. So he right, had written sequel, this sorry. you know, novel, The Evening Star, and then Terms of Endearment had been a big film. Paramount decided they were going to make the sequel as well. It was my first deal ever from book to film. Right. So he let me make the sale to Paramount. So it was a fairly simple deal, but he let me do it. We got caught up on something, I remember, and I, I placed a call, nothing, nothing. We couldn't get past it. And I said to Irving, you know, w- what does one do in this case? And he says, you call the head of the studio. And I was like, I mean, I'm two years into this job. No, I wasn't even two years, one year into this job. And I was like, I can't call the head of the studio, who was Sherry Lansing at the time. Right. And he said, yeah, just pick up the phone and call Sherry Lansing. So I did. Left word with her office. She, you know, wasn't available. Just before I was leaving the office about six o'clock at night, I think, the phone rings. And they said, we have Sherry Lansing for you. She gets on the phone and she apologizes for taking so long to get back to me. It's the same day, right? She's in Europe. So she's eight hours ahead, two in the morning or three in the morning there. And I said, Sherry, you know, you, you could have called me tomorrow. And she said, no, no, no. My rule is to call everybody back the same day. I love that. And That's my I was rule. so impressed. She fixed the problem for me. She said, What's going on? And I told her. And See, that's was, real Hollywood. It was fixed. That's how that's how it's done. But uh, you know, Larry was, you know, listen, he was very, you know, he turned out a lot of novels. If you've not read Larry McMurtry, you really must. He yeah, is, you're you're missing out. He's an incredible writer. Well, well and especially if you like, you know, westerns or or, or anything along those sort of lines, you know, you must, you must read that. And, you know, Lonesome Dove's incredible. It won mm-hmm. the Pulitzer Prize for a reason. Sure. But, but even some of his non-Westerns, you know, Terms of Endearment, some of those, they're a lot of fun to read. And he's just a fine writer that you just breeze right through them because the writing's so good. That was actually a favorite film of mine as well. Uh, Terms of Terms Endearment. Terms of Endearment, mm-hmm. yeah. And well, of course, you, you could have... That's you know, not my fault. Know. I just sold the book. No, I'm not saying the book. I'm saying the... Adaptation. That's what I mean. The movie. The movie was. I don't smell them. I just sell them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ricky Lake. Wasn't well, she, in, she? She was in that. Ricky Evening Lake Star. was an Evening Star. Yes, was she? she was. Mm-hmm. I don't remember it that well. It wasn't a very memorable movie. But <laughs> let's not forget he was the co-writer of Brokeback Mountain. Oh, correct. This 
past year, we have lost so every time I turn around, it's another human being just checking out. It's just unbelievable. We also lost Jessica Walters. Jessica Walters. Um, recently too, and and you know that always makes me. Uh, I don't know. It's but you're always going to lose somebody. There's a lot of no, people you do, out there. But it's yeah. just you become more hypersensitive to it because we're beginning to see how fragile and you know. Well, you're hypersensitive to because these are people when been, we were but... younger that we were paying attention to, and now they're dying. You know. Anyway, that's my thought for the day. Your one thought for today. My one thought. One that's thought. a lot. That's a big thought. <laughs> I'm thinking something else right now. <laughs> so there's two thoughts for the day. One I will keep to myself. Don't overwork yourself. <laughs> Let that second you know, thought you go. Know, hand me that damn Let drink. Let that second thought go. We don't, hand me that drink. We don't want Screw you the platelets. We don't want to overwork you. <laughs> Do you follow Patricia Gucci online? Yeah, I follow her. I follow her to Gucci. <laughs> no, you don't, but do you follow her on social media? Yeah, I do. Did you see her comment about the movie being made? Yes, yes. What did you think of that? Well, I, I mean, I get it. You know, I she and I, listen, that book was not easy to do. It took us a long time. She came to me with one writer, then it switched to another writer. Then, it, you know, it was a the book. I think that took, book took us four years or something from start to finish, which is a long time. So there was a lot invested. Uh, you know, in that time, I got to know her very well. I've stayed with her at her place in Switzerland. I've stayed with her place that her father built here in Palm Springs. So, you know, we've become very, and she came to Italy and stayed at the, right, the right. villa. Because for... we were going to meet her at one, one of our trips. And I think the time frame was off. She was there earlier than we were or vice versa. Yeah. Something we, we crossed. Yeah, you weren't there yet, but I, she I came. Come, she yeah. They came down to Italy and stayed with me for three or four nights in uh -huh. Italy. You know, she wrote a book in the name of Gucci, and her father was the brainchild behind Gucci. And it's an unbelievable story. It's a great success story. It's sort of the old American, even though they're Italians, it's the old American success story because really his success was here in America. You know, he he uh, he started with the leather bags and said, you know, there's a real market here for high-end bags because he, he used to work somewhere and he would see that the bags were falling apart. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, you know what? There's a real business here in creating bags that don't fall apart. And that's how it started in a shop in Florence and it grew and grew. And then he was the first Italian to bring Italian goods in to America and make them flourish. So it was a huge success. Well, now... For a long time, they had put a movie on hold that was at Fox because it's not really about that part of Gucci. It's about the nephew of her father, her cousin, because there was a murder that sort of overtook everything in the Gucci family. It took all you know all the attention off Correct. to this sort yeah, of— Correct. It was a huge scandal. It was a huge scandal because what happened is it was the nephew that had found a way to muscle the company away from Gucci— there were three brothers, her father, Aldo, being the main one that built the company, but he did it with his brothers. They each had their son. And they, all, of course, all had their kids. And Aldo, because he was getting older, decided, well, I'll split my stock between my kids, right? And and the other brother gave his stock to this, the, his son, Maurizio, I believe his name was, who is Patricia's cousin. Then he realized that with his stock and his two cousins' stocks, he could control this company. And he convinced them to do it. And they took the company away from the father. 
and of course ran it into the ground. We all, you know, if you know any of the history, you know, they had to sell the company eventually. But he was kind of a playboy, Maurizio, and, you know, he had all this money and he just spent it like crazy. He wasn't really running the business. He was off with boats and girls and yeah. he had this wife that he then separated from. And while having this girlfriend, well, the wife came back, the separated wife. I don't know if they were divorced at the time. I don't remember. But and she killed him. That's right. She shot him. She shot him. Thinking that she would then, as oh, they must not have been separated. They must have only been separated, not divorced, because she thought it would give her control of Gucci. But of course, when you're being charged under murder, you don't get the assets from the murder. Yeah. But she hadn't thought, I think, far enough ahead. No. Uh, and she went to jail. So it's always been this sort of like little thing in the corner of the family that sort of overtook their history. This mm -hmm. this little that murder little dark from the, someone outside the family. Yeah, the little dark spot. So they're shooting the movie. Lady Gaga's in it. They've got an unbelievable cast. Ridley Scott, who, who doesn't love a Ridley Scott film? They're shooting in Rome, but they cast Al Pacino as her father. I can see it. But have you seen her father? Very <laughs> dapper, pulled well, together. Well, yeah, I guess. Though they're going to have to pull Al together because he's... I don't know. Have you seen his last few films? Yeah, but he's such a good actor, and you know Hollywood. He's a good still actor, has its but magic. He's, you know, it still makes its magic. I, he's such a good actor. Her concern and what she was, you know, talking about is that God, they hope, you know, he pulls it together because she doesn't want her the, the legacy. She, well, she saw a clip, I believe, is what it was. She saw a clip, and that's when she kind of went crazy. And she said, "This is not who my father was. He's being portrayed like he was a gangster, you know, an Italian mobster, and overweight and unkept." Yeah, that definitely you know, was Al Pacino. Not him. No, he had to stop. Yeah. <laughs> well, they she, have to clean him up. I mean, they no. This is this is the finished clip. Oh well, saw. never mind. So she's very concerned, you know, of all people, to portray her father that way. Well, why did she wait till the last minute? Didn't she see any uh, anything before? No. Why would they show her? Yeah, but even when the casting, wouldn't she have had something to? It just it has nothing consider? to do with her. I guess not. Yeah, it has nothing right. to do with her. It's not her book. It's not her story. So. Yeah, okay, um, there you go. So you know, we sold her book it. twice, and, you know, she backed out of the deal for the same reasons. She was like, no, you cannot portray my family no, differently than who they You're are. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll have her on. It's an interesting story. Yeah, she's super her. interesting. And I'd love to have her on the show because she's a fascinating person, has a long history, and uh, she's very energetic. I like her. She's got that Italian passion. Uh-huh. And... Um, you know, she can be a lot of fun to be around. Yeah, let's do. That'll be a great conversation, too. Be nice to welcome her on. You know what I meant to ask you about? Did you watch the Tina Turner documentary? Yes, I absolutely loved it. You know, I had a personal relationship with Tina Turner. So I had met her back um, in 1981. And um, she and I became very friendly. I was invited to her house many a time. Uh, I traveled with her on a, on a couple of occasions. I went with her to Las Vegas uh, to San Francisco when she uh, performed at the uh, Fairmont Hotel, and then she did a show at the Riviera. She'd, have, she'd love Dom Perignon. She'd always call me Joseph. Joseph, let's have a little bit more DP, huh? And so uh, we'd sit, we'd talk, we'd, have, I'd, we'd cook dinner, and she was very elegant, Tina, and meticulously. Her house was beautiful. <laughs> Funny story. So she invited me to go to Vegas to see her perform at the Riviera. So we flew together. So we're at LAX, and we're waiting in the uh, airport lounge. And there was an actress. Her name was Marianne Mobley. <laughs> yes, I remember. And her. she was from Alabama. Uh -huh. you know, Did she, she was, do E.T. for a while or something? Yeah, One she of those was married things. to Gary 
yes. Collins, I yes, believe. Exactly. And she was um, she was a former Miss, Miss America. America and TV in TV star. <laughs> so we were sitting there and she came running over. She was all gusset up. <laughs> and she said, Oh, I just adore you. I just adore you. Aretha, you're my favorite. Oh, how embarrassing. And it took every bit of me not to just bust, you know. And then, but we both looked at each other and we and we giggled. And and she said, oh, well, thank you. I'm Tina Turner. And I'll let Aretha know next time I see her, huh? <laughs> we laughed about that the entire trip. What did she, how did she respond to that? She must have been just. That's what she, Tina just said. Just no, Mary Ann. She didn't get it. I mean, this is how dingbat you are. Oh, Florabama. Come on. Oh, <laughs> our Alabama folk. You know, my friend Jamie, she always buys these incredible concert tickets. And sometimes she can't go. And so if she calls me and she says, I have tickets, I always go, yes. I don't even wait to hear. <laughs> I don't care where they are. I don't go, so, yes. Because sure. you know they're going to be right down front of the concert, right? So she calls me up. She can't make the Tina Turner concert at the Hollywood Bowl. And would I like to go? Yeah, I'd like to go. So I call my friend Maria. You want to go to the Tina Turner concert? <laughs> Hello. Yes, I do. So we arrive at the bowl, and the opening act is Cindy Lauper, and she's pregnant. And you know, the bowl's kind of still filling in. And we walk to the thing and show the guy our ticket. He says, Oh, you'll have to wait a minute. I was like, Okay. So we're waiting. I thought, What are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? And then Cindy Lauper's between songs, and he's like, Okay, come on down. He brings us down to literally the two front center seats of the Hollywood Bowl. And it was so tight, our knees were touching the stage skirt, right? Uh-huh. We were crunched up against the stage. So we're sitting there, and we're all giddy, like, oh, look how close we are. This is crazy, right? We're kind of laughing. We've got our drinks coming. And Cindy Lauper comes down, and she stands on the seat next to me facing the bowl, and because the seat's not that steady, she puts her hand on my head for balance. <laughs> so, so I'm facing forward. She's facing backwards to the bowl, singing with her hand on my head. <laughs> and was she seeing girls just want to have Maria fun? Maria and I were just laughing, laughing, because I couldn't really move. Right? Yeah. I had this huge smile on my face. But I was like, this is the craziest thing ever. Cut forward, Tina Turner in concert. It's great. It's unbelievable. It's the one concert that Oprah came out on the stage and everybody went crazy. And so. In the Tina wig. I don't know if she came out in a Tina yeah, wig. Yeah, she did. She, I can't remember. It's been a while. But then Tina gets down to, you know, some of the slower songs and she decides to sit down on the edge of the stage. So she sits right in front of us. So our knees are touching. I mean, touching, not just kind of touching. Yeah. There's no room. The knees are locked together. And again, we have these huge smiles on our face. <laughs> We're laughing. She couldn't be, but her face is not but two feet from mine yeah. as she's singing to the Hollywood Bowl. And it was so funny because she was looking at me. She knew I just, I must have been red and I must have the biggest smile on my face because she smiled at me like, yeah, I know it's a little weird, right? But I will never forget that. It was the most exciting concert. It's like you had a three-way with Tina Turner and Cyndi Lauper. (laughs) (laughs) Did you like the documentary? I did. I I liked- It was sad in a way. I didn't come away sad. You didn't? But she seemed a little sad when she said, I've had a terrible life. And I thought, wow, Tina Turner saying she had a terrible life. She had a, well, she did. 
I mean, well, up to a certain point. But here, here's the part: she doesn't deal in negative or past. Really, what she used that for was to catapult her into the better place, and she doesn't like to visit that. And she made that very clear. I think what was annoying to me, what was sad to me, is that people just didn't celebrate constantly the fact that wow, from the ashes, look what emerged. Right. Because I mean, she came from. She was. They spent the, an awful lot of time on Ike. I thought, yeah. considering they were well, only together I mean, for six years, I thought the but, they spent but I mean, a lot of time I, on But him. I mean, she basically, her name was Ike and Tina, when you think about it. And she had to do everything to break that off, you know? And she did. All right, well, we should move on because Richard Morgan is knocking on the door. All right. Well, so when we come back, we will have author Richard Morgan join our conversation. So we're back. Joining us is author Richard Morgan, all the way from Scotland, Ireland, London, Spain. Where are you right now? <laughs> I'm about 100 miles outside of London these days. It's uh, very tranquil, very quiet. Not at all like Glasgow. It was a big switch for me moving down from Glasgow, I tell you. But a lot of the time when we speak, you're in Spain. My wife's Spanish, so we spend quite a lot of time out there when we can. I say not least now having had a, had a son I'm trying to keep his bilingual heritage t topped up, so we try and expose him to Spanish culture and language as much as possible. So each week we do a cocktail in honor of our guest, and Joey's going to talk about the cocktail he created for you. I sort of cheated a little bit because I know that your drink that you like is a Long Island iced tea. Yeah, I figure if you're going to make a cocktail, why not just pour the entire drinks cabinet into the glass? <laughs> <laughs> so you've got all the five liquors and everything else that, that you need. And I'll, I'll send you the recipe and it'll be on our social media. But, but we did rename it for you. Oh, thank you. And uh, yeah, so it's called the, uh, an altered perception rather than your altered carbon. Yeah, well, that'll work. It's appropriate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah especially after this one. And look how big it is. So. Oh, yeah, that's the yeah, way. Yeah, 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 no messing around. So, yeah, Th this is a one-shot deal, so. <laughs> cheers. This is it. You, you don't need more than one of those. Wow, yeah, you really don't. Nice. Yeah, cheers. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Feels like Saturday already. Yeah, I'm, I, I didn't actually have the makings. I looked in my drinks cabinet. I'm out a couple of liquors. So so I'm just on, I'm on uh, small batch uh, bourbon. Oh, okay. In, well, honor, that, that in, on, in honor of my American host. Well, to those people who don't know, the reason it's called Altered Perception is because Richard is the author of a novel called Altered Carbon, which many people will know was made into a TV series for Netflix that mm -hmm. ran for two An seasons. Exciting show. Yeah, I thought so. So we want to talk a little bit about what you do in your books, which is world building, especially because people know Altered Carbon. We want to talk about that journey from writing that novel to getting it sold and your involvement in the creation of that TV show, people would like to hear about, you know, how that happens because it's never the same. And everybody always asks us, you know, how do you do that? And it's different every time. <laughs> very, very slowly is the answer, I think. <laughs> it, it, it was a journey of some considerable fucking time, I tell you. I, I finished the book up in 1997. I was living in Madrid at the time, working there. I'm not one of these guys who bangs out a draft and then goes back and revises the draft. It's a bit like the tide coming in. I'll sort of write a couple of chapters and then go back and revise, then write another two and go back and revise. And so I work my way through very, very slowly, but it gets increasingly polished as we go along. And what had happened was that I got to the point when I finished it that the front end was supremely polished because I've been writing this fucking thing for years, right? So the back end, not so much. So I sent it out and Almost without exception, every single person I sent it to, uh, every agent I sent it to, 
said, oh, this is great. Send me the rest. And I, and I, and I sent the whole lot. I said, I sent the rest. And without exception, every single agent said, no, this is not for us. <laughs> and it took me a very stubborn and persistent sort of 18 months of mailing out, getting back, mailing out, getting back before I accepted there was something wrong, which was, of course, yes, that the front end was, you know, fit for purpose. The back end was not. So I took off for a month. I went down to the south of Spain with my wife and we stayed. We went and stayed with her grandmother, actually, who's a really cool, hard-boiled old lady from the Civil War days. And I stayed in the apartment and I tore that book apart. I cut out everything in it that I could, you know, could possibly be considered self-indulgent or, or you know, unpolished or anything, and, I, and put it together in in a fully polished form. Then I started sending it out again, and you can guess how happy all those guys were to see this for another a second time. <laughs> yeah, it's not an easy read. It's a very dense read. This is not a you know fly through it like I'll just skim over it. But so what happened was, of course, these guys were saying, look, look fuck off. I, I told you we didn't want this. Why are you sending it to me again? And I'm saying, no, no, but I've, I've been over it and I've revised it. And it's, it's, it's a much better book now. You know, I've seen the error of my ways. Get lo- No, get, I told you no. Get out of <laughs> And so I was roundly rejected, you know, a second time by everybody. Very dejected about it. And at that point, I moved back to the UK. Then one day, I can't remember why it was. I, oh, yeah, I was in a bookshop. And I suddenly saw that Virgin Media had a science fiction imprint which they called Virgin SF. And I thought, oh, there's one I didn't submit to. So, uh, you know, the only one I didn't submit yeah. to. <laughs> so I thought, all right, so I'll send it out. So I sent it I sent it out, and I got the same thing. The guy saw the first few chaps said, oh, yeah, please send me the rest. Sent the rest. And about three weeks later, I get this letter back from him, and it is effusive, right? It's, and it says, dear Richard, Thank you for letting me read your your uh, novel, Altered Carbon. Oh, it wasn't called Altered Carbon back then. It was called Download Blues. But uh, thank you for letting me read your novel, uh, Download Blues. And uh, uh, I have to say it is one of the most magnificent debut novels I have ever had the pleasure to read. Um, I really loved everything about it. You captured it. He just you know, waxed lyrical. And he says, and then the letter winds up, unfortunately, the Virgin Science Fiction imprint has been frozen. Um, we are unable to publish any books of any sort. If we are ever able to unfreeze the imprint, then you rest assured that this book will be the first pu- our first port of call. But in the meantime, you should submit elsewhere. And I go, yeah, yeah, tell me about it. I already submitted. Um, <laughs> so, so what I did was I photocopied that letter about a thousand times, and I sent the manuscript out a third time (laughs) with this letter on top and a covering note saying, look, I know you've seen this before, but it has been revised and please find enclosed a letter from, you know, Jack so-and-so head of no dice, uh, apart from one agent, my um, Carolyn Whitaker in in London. And she read the thing and she went, Oh, all right. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll read it. And then she got in touch and she said, I'll take it on, but you're going to have to pay me for postage. (laughs) She hit me up for 30 quid for postage. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. You know, I don't care. I stole my soul. Um, and yeah, and and the, you know, I mean, as as you'll know, certainly, Alan, um, you know, the, the, the first rule of writing is get an agent. And the second rule of writing is get an agent. Within moments of getting an agent, I mean, she took me on. And I uh, say, I, it was less than a month. She comes back to me and she goes, yeah, I've got your three book deal with Galantz, um, you know, and just and that like that. Simon was- Spanton. That was with Simon Spanton. That brilliant the editor that they let go, who I thought was half genius. It was a parting of the ways. Though. I think he had had enough as well, and he yeah. was sort of wanting was to mutual. move on. 
you know, it was after all this time of like, felt like bashing my head against a, a brick wall and suddenly the door flies open. You fall flat on your face on a red carpet on the other side. It was, uh, that was awesome. How, how do you feel about the adaptation now into a, a TV show? Fucking awesome. I mean, I, uh, there are a lot of people who complained about the fact that, you know, they changed things in the show and right. all the rest of it. But, but again, I think you've got to take, first of all, I mean, first of all, it doesn't matter to me, right? Because the moment I saw that first episode, and I, they, Netflix had me across to LA and they, they and screened it for me so that I, they could record some reactions. And from the moment I, I saw that first episode, I'm just like, yes! <laughs> because, because it was absolutely what I'd envisaged in my head uh-huh. put on screen. And, um, and, and I mean, the, the story diverges a bit later on. So, But the first two episodes, they were pretty much word for word. You know, I mean, Lita, Lita Calagridis was incredibly respectful of the work. And and she really nailed it. Um, so, first of all, it, you know, it didn't matter to me because it was such an amazing feeling to have that happen to to something that was something that had only ever existed inside my head was suddenly externalized on a big screen. Yeah, you know? you're, yeah, you're that witnessing must be very all of that. Exciting. That's pretty amazing. You see these things you thought of, and now you can see they them portrayed. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing beyond that was that yeah, I, as I said, that Calagridis was incredibly respectful of it. And of me, I mean, she from the get go, she was on, she was on skyping me and saying, you know, look, um, what do you think about this? And she sent me casting reels uh, of their, you know, the early interview things they did for for the actors that they were thinking of having. She sent me scripts to look at. She asked me to to sort of re- revamp a couple of bits and pieces that she wasn't happy with in in the script process. Um, you know, she really, really involved me at every stage of the process, and she list- really listened, and in some cases took what I said and said, yeah, actually, we'll go away and we will, we will modify accordingly. Quite often, she would listen very patiently and smile and say, hmm, okay, thanks. And then she would totally ignore the, what I said. <laughs> Be- because, because, you know, as I, I did say to her at one point when she said, I hope you're not upset. And I was saying, well, I don't know, Lita, you know, one of us is a seasoned industry professional in making movies and, and TV shows, and it sure as shit isn't me. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it was an incredibly respectful attempt to honor the book. It captured almost everything that's in it, but there's almost nothing in the novel that doesn't show up in that first season in some shape or form. Sometimes it's been transplanted. It's like the words come out of a different character's mouth or it happens at a different section of the narrative or whatever, but there's almost nothing in there that doesn't make it into into the show. And then, yeah, there were things that were modified because you know you can't do things exactly the same in, in two different media, or because Lita had particular her obsessions were varied from mine in certain areas. The things that she was passionate about were slightly different, and she wanted to pursue those. Are, are those things discussed with you prior? Oh yeah, we talked. We talked about it. I mean, we we you know um, well. I mean, one of the things the early early drafts of the the stuff coming out of the writers' room, they had made Kovach a lot more likable than he is in the book. They made him more heroic, I guess. And I said to her, I said, look, you know, that's your call if you want to go that way. But for me, a lot of the strength of this character has always been the fact that he is actually not that likable a human being. My tenet is always, and I guess this is also some advice to writers if they're writing similar kind of stuff to me, is if your hero doesn't scare you, how the fuck is he going to scare the bad guys? You know, you've got to be afraid of this man, because if you're not afraid of him, nobody will be. And she went away and she did. She reworked those early scripts to bring in more of that but then there were other things where i sort of you know sort of said i don't really think you should go with this and she just like well you know thanks but i'm going to anyway yeah you don't have to be likable but that keeping that intrigue you know if you there's a person there that you're intrigued by that that you know that sticks 
that sticks, you know. In hard-boiled fiction, we're very comfortable with these characters being not especially likable. There is an entire trend in, you know, it's the noir tradition, it's the cyberpunk tradition. It's, there's an entire stream running through fiction that acknowledges the the fact that, you know, men of violence, by definition, are probably not very comfortable to be around. They're not the sort of people you want playing with your kids, you know. And um, <laughs> and that's it, it runs in complete contrast to the sort of the Marvel stream, I think, where is this idea that you can have violence, you can have heroism, you can have intense and desperate moments and narrative beats, but then somehow it all devolves back to this very comfortable white picket fence, middle American kind of safe little world. Time for a refill. We'll be right back. You brought up something interesting, which is the idea that, well, we've all heard it. People complaining the book wasn't transferred to film or TV exactly. And we've had other authors complain, oh, they didn't do my book properly. But, you know, they are two different medians. And we've talked about it on this podcast before. You know, if, if you like the book, then like the book. But when you go to the movie or the TV series, it has to be created for that medium. Because in a book, you can talk about what's in someone's head. You can you know, do things that you have to somehow figure out how to show in a visual way. You can set things, set up a payoff in a way that um, the, the reader will not even question it because you have directed them not to look in that particular corner. Right. But of course, if you're making, making a movie, you don't have that option. Uh, you know, so if, if somebody... If somebody's on screen, you don't have a way to say to the audience, don't look at that guy, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. um, and, you're not, and you're not reading a book in an hour and 35 minutes. No, no, absolutely. So absolutely. you have to condense that story into an hour and 35 minutes that the person's going to get ev all the information and they're going to be entertained and intrigued and interested. Yeah, it's a whole different medium. It's, it's, I mean, and it, it, it requires different tools. And it, to a certain extent, it requires different professionals as well. And, you know, it would have been the height of arrogance for me, you know, with with zero experience in screenwriting, really, to to be coming on to Lita and her writer's room and saying, oh, you guys, you know, you know, you, you need to do this. And you've taken this out of my book. And it's like, yes, we have, Richard. And there's a very good reason why we've done that. And here it is, you know. So, I mean, luckily, I didn't have to have that conversation. I came to the, the, the adaptation already knowing that. Uh, and I have to say, Lita's she's she's such a lovely woman. She really is. Uh, she was such a joy to work with. When she had to let me down, she let me down gently. She, you know, she she would cu cushion the blow, and um, she was absolutely upfront about about everything. About saying, you know, I'm going to change this because I want this element to be in here, and and I'm going to shift it around. Uh, you know, there was a very very well, famous within the context of the show. There's a famous scene in which Kovacs gets tortured. And in the book, he's tortured in the body of a woman. They put him into a female sleeve in order to do it. For me, that entire sequence was written as a kind of gesture of solidarity towards women and the awful shit that they put up with totalitarian regimes, um, imprisoning them and, and torturing them and so forth. So what happens is he's tortured in this body of this woman. Later on, he gets a, he gets free, he escapes, and he comes back, and then he he brutally slaughters everybody who had anything to do with it. Now, to me, that was a pretty clear gesture of solidarity. But Lita was saying, she said, the problem is if I do that on screen, what people will see is a woman they don't associate with Kovach being put through all these horrible things, and then Kovach will come in his body, and he will do all the avenging. And it's just going to be seen as misogynist porn, you know, uh, torture <laughs> porn. Um, and she was absolutely right about that. There's, there was no way for you to do that in a movie. And so she's like, right, we're not doing that. We have to find another way. And they, they found another way. And I, it works brilliantly. It's, it's still pretty unpleasant and hard-boiled, but it's just a different approach 
to the material. And and the whole time, the whole sort of two-year period leading up to when the show was released, it was always that. It was always a case of, mm, we can't do that, so we're going to do this instead. I don't know. You've got to be grown up about these things. I think it's interesting because a lot of that stuff tends to come from people who haven't had much experience. So they, they come to it in a very virginal state, I guess you'd say. Well, and your situation was very unusual because most authors are not as involved in the writing process as you were on Altered Carbon. Or as calm as you are. Well, that's, but by the way, that's why they don't have them because they're yeah, not calm. No. <laughs> well, I think there are not a lot of producers like Lita Caligridis, to be honest. Um, uh, I think that's part of it. What could I possibly complain about? We got the biggest budget for a TV show ever, I think. I mean, I think, I think they spent more on the first two episodes of Alter Carbon than they spent on the whole first season of Game of Thrones. Wow. I think that was the, the, the figure they gave. They, they maxed the budget out. I mean, they went to Netflix and Netflix went, yeah, all right then. And, and they gave them all, <laughs> all this money. And I had, you know, uh, what's his name? Uh, Miguel Sapochnik to direct the first season. He's already like a rising star because of his work on Game of Thrones. And he asked to come aboard because he liked the book and wanted to do this. I got all this major talent, you know, whether it be, um, you know, the, 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 the costumes people or the acting talent or the, the writers, all this incredible talent clustered around. And you're just like, yeah, what's not to like, man? I mean, <laughs> yeah, this, that's true. you know, and, and if at the end of it, parts of that show didn't come out the way I personally would have imagined them coming out if I'd, had the magical sort of god god control over the whole thing so what yeah yeah the bigger picture is there so i mean that you know you can nitpick everything and then you wind up with nothing no yeah. and the other thing is there were a number of situations in which you know lita's version actually ended up being better than mine don't get me wrong there are some where i still think no i i much prefer what the way it worked in the book but i mean give a case from the other side of the ledger the hotel you know the hendrix hotel which in the show becomes the raven hotel what happened was that the, the hotel is the Hendrix Hotel and the avatar of the hotel, the AI avatar, is Jimi Hendrix. So they went to the Hendrix estate and said, look, we're going to make a show in which there is this psychopathic AI hotel and we'd like to use Jimmy's likeness as the avatar. And of course, Jimmy Hendrix is going, get the fuck out of here, man. What are you, you know, I mean, he was, he was a peacenik for Christ's sake. We kicked it around. We went in various directions. And then suddenly Alita comes up with this thing of, you know what, we're going we're gonna to make it the Raven Hotel and uh, we're going to have an avatar who is Edgar Allan Poe. And it's great because Poe invented the modern detective story and blah, blah, oh, blah, there blah. You go. And you don't have to pay him. <laughs> I, I hated the idea. I absolutely hated the idea. And I, I was like, mm, oh, I don't know. And, and it was one of those ones where Alita just listened to me very you know, and then went, yes, okay. And, and anyway, they did it anyway. <laughs> and then, of course, they flew me out to Vancouver to, to watch some of the show being shot. And as soon as I got into the set for the, for the Raven Hotel and saw these fantastic Escher print ravens going up the walls of the, you know, of, of, the, of the room, blend, fading out from into cream. And, and, uh, and, and then I saw the, the show where when he wakes up in the hotel, there's a, there's a, a, a holographic raven sitting on a, on a perch croaking at him and that's his alarm clock um, oh, wow. and and then i saw the rushes of of chris connor doing the poe character and you're just like oh my god this is fucking genius yeah. you know <laughs> um and, and and now i will hand on heart i got no problem admitting that i think the raven hotel and poe is a far better construct than than my own hendrix, hotel, hendrix you know? idea. yeah so it swings and roundabouts you know some you win some you lose 
Well, talk a little bit, Richard, about the world building that you do. How do you, how does this process work? I'm interested to know myself. When you decide you're going to do this, how do you sit down and figure out this world that you're going to create? Because there's a lot that goes into that. You have to think, in this case, you're thinking, what, 500 years in the future or something? Yeah. yeah. And so how do you process that and and decide, you know, what do I include in this world? What do I not include in this world? Because you have to have a vision already for yourself. Oh, uh, I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, in 500 years, there probably won't be anything to see anyway. <laughs> no, that, no, 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 that's the short answer. I don't. I mean, I don't generally sit down and give a lot of thought to the world building in advance. What I will tend to do is I'll have an idea for a, a, you know, a situation or a scene, even just a, sing, a single scene from the movie playing in my head or you know, a confrontation between characters is often the way it starts out. And... Um, and I would just, I, I, I tend to think of myself less of a, less of an author and more of a, or less of a craftsman and more of a dung beetle. Um, because what you're doing is you're just rolling this shit up until eventually you've got a big enough ball of it that you can actually maybe do something with it. And that's what I tend to do. The world building gets done on the fly as I write. And it is mostly whimsical. I mean, it comes to me as I put the story down. And then I have to go back and creatively back think why that thing is there or why you see that now the the benefit of this is that the book comes across as very organic it's very usually i think people who read my stuff they don't often see what's coming and the reason for that is because i don't see what's coming you know if i'm on chapter 18 of the book there's a very good chance i got no clue what is going to happen in chapter 27 which means that you know that i pass that on to the reader and the reader doesn't know either so hopefully it comes as a an agreeable surprise so you don't plot out your story on cards on the wall and move your scenes around and no, no, no 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 nothing like that nothing like that i just write at some point you have to go back and i i think ray bradbury had a way of describing this that i thought was quite it speaks to me anyway where He's got a character in one of his novels who is a writer, and the, another character is asking him how how to write because he's aspiring to do it. And he says, "All I could tell you is um, throw up in your typewriter in the morning, clean it out in the afternoon." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah and, it's, and, and to be honest with you, I honestly feel that that is a, that is as close to my, describing my process that anyone has ever come in the sense that yeah, I you just pour all this stuff in, and then. Much further down the yeah. road, you're like, okay, let's tidy up now because yeah. because you know it, it, it has to flow. Yeah, it makes sense. Richard, you want to tell people what you're working on now? Is that something you can reveal? Well, yeah, I can. I'm working on a sequel to my last novel, which came out in at the end of 2018. It was, was called uh, Thin Air. It's a kind of noir on Mars story. So it's called Gone Machine, and is the it, it follows on very closely from the events of Thin Air. I mean, it's it's about a year later and same protagonist, similar problems. So I'm working on that. But the COVID thing and the lockdown really knocked me back. I've, we've had a bit of a rough year with one thing and another and some family illness. So I'm way delayed on that. Um, but I am tri- chipping away at it. And I've also fallen into some consulting work for um, a video game company who are based in the Ukraine. They're called Gunzilla. Uh, yeah, so um, and I say I'm consulting for them on story and script there, and that's very interesting. It's interesting to be back in the AAA gaming arena again. I did that about 10 years ago for Electronic Arts. Well, this was great. You are clearly somebody who knows their stuff. Before we let you go, where can listeners find you on social media? You can't. I'm not on social media these days. Um, <laughs> You're one of the off. wise ones. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I got kicked off Twitter for supporting J.K. Rowling. And, oh, um, no. 
Oh, and, and I um and I, I was never on any of the others because God knows even Twitter was quite enough out of my working day. So now wait a minute, back up. Did Twitter kick you off because you supported her? Yeah, absolutely. I got banned. Yeah, yeah, permaban. I was permaban, man. I, I I am persona non grata. Yeah. Long story short, then. So yeah, I'm not on Twitter anymore. Uh, I was never on any of the others because I just didn't have the time to give to it. That I, ha- I do have a website, uh, richardkmorgan.com. I update there. I've got a blog there that I update about once a month on average. Uh, so I, you can find me there. And there's basic information about my books, what I'm doing, and so forth. So you know, if news breaks about a new TV adaptation or something like that, that's where you'll be able to find it. Thank you. We really appreciate yeah, you doing thank this you, Richard. for us. No, no, you're, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. It's great to talk to you again, Alan, after so long. I know. It's been a while. Stay well. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Well, that was a lot of fun, this episode. And he is so interesting. I just think he is the greatest, and he's such a good writer. He's such a good writer. How long has he been your client for? I met him when Altered Carbon was just coming out, so that was 2003. Wow. So that's, what, 18 years now? I I represent him for film and TV only. He's got a literary agent in London for his books, but I represent all the film and TV rights, and he's a great guy and is a good client. Terrific, really terrific. As always, we're going to ask you to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast series wherever you get your podcasts. We don't care if it's Apple. We don't care if it's Swatch. We don't care if it's Macy's. We just want you to (laughs) make sure you are subscribing. And we love reading your responses. There was a lot of, I don't know if you saw it, Joey, there was a lot of nice reviews this week. Uh, and don't forget to follow us on social media. And also share, please. Yes, yes. <laughs> and keep the questions coming. You can message us on Facebook. You can message us on Instagram or Twitter. Email us to contact at twoguysfromhollywood.com. And we'll talk at you soon. Two Guys from Hollywood is hosted, created, and produced by Alan Nevins and Joey Santos. Produced by Lauren Boone. Editing and post-production by Nathan Moody. Music by Luca. Executive produced by Dan Patrick. It is also executive produced by Paul Anderson and Nick Pinella for Workhouse Media. This podcast is a production of Renaissance Literary and Talent and Dan Patrick Productions in association with Workhouse Media. Two Guys from Hollywood is a production of iHeartRadio and the Dan Patrick Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.